has also been an integral core member of the Herodow team. We have Andrew Baxt. Um, and then we have the man of the hour. Uh, the reason we're all here, Professor Ralph Pouse. Um, so before I, before I sort of let Ralph uh, give his own introduction, he's very, very humble man. And so, so I'll, I'll sort of hype him up a little bit and, and give him his flowers. So we looked on the Dimensions Global Database and Ralph has been cited uh, when you search hair loss or androgenic alopecia 21,797 times compared to the second place researcher who was cited 8,438 times. So he's, he's pretty much running laps around the competition at this point. He would never tell you that, but, but I will. Um, and, and outside of that, he's uh, currently a professor of dermatology at the U University of Miami. He previously taught and researched at the University of Manchester, Max Planck Institute, Yale, the list goes on. Um, outside of academia, he runs a research company called Cutanian um, and a wet lab called Monasterium. So with that, Ralph, I'll, I'll let you take it away and, and give us a little more of your background, if, if you'd like, a little more color. Yeah, so I'm, I'm actually, uh, like you guys, I'm a hair nerd. Um, so uh, I got into this uh, when, I, when I came out of medical school, uh, back in Berlin then, and uh, I, I knew I wanted to become a dermatologist, but uh, thought, well, maybe I should get some serious research training first. And... Uh, I ended up in a, in a lab uh, at Yale where they made me work on hair. And I thought that was a terrible subject. Um, and after two weeks, I got completely hooked on the subject. And I realized that's the world's best model organ you can possibly do research on. And people care about it. Otherwise, we wouldn't be sitting here. Um, and, uh, well, I've been uh, doing for um, about 15 years clinical dermatology, um, first in, in, in Berlin and then in Hamburg. And then I defected into doing research and um, having more fun uh, than ever. Um, and on top of that, uh, thought that, well, maybe some of the hair research essays we developed um, in the human system, also in mice, uh, in the university, might as well be put to good commercial use. And um, so we are offering this uh, as a commercial service in Monasterium Laboratory in my hometown in Münster, Germany, uh, and um, which is now part of the Kima organization. And uh, just a, a while ago, I made another company in Hamburg, Germany, where we uh, engage together with industry in co-development projects and with people like you uh, who say, well, you know, this man uh, suggests some crazy hair project. Let's see whether we, whether we want to cuff up some funding for it. And um, the first one we agreed on was uh, thyroid hormones um, as potential hair growth stimulants. Yeah, perfect, perfect. So, before we sort of get into all the whole the full thyroid hormone study, let's I'll just let uh, Baxt and then Benji introduce themselves, and then we'll dive right into it. Yeah, uh, Andrew Baxt, also known as Andy, went on Discord, uh, co-founder of HairDAO. Um, just to give a little background, HairDAO. The the idea came from um, both. I mean, Andrew can speak for himself, but have been suffering from hair loss for at least a few years now. Um, can probably go back to high school. Uh, we were just joking before about how I used to be called patches in high school. Um, so yeah, I took that, took that on my shoulder. Uh, and um, yeah, had been in crypto for a while. Um, saw VitaDAO in the summer of 2021. And then shortly after, just from dealing with my own hair loss journey and really realizing that the current solution set just isn't adequate, um, that I didn't have much time, <laughs> to be frank, uh, that, um, that there was an opportunity here to build an alternative uh, really an alternative alternative pharmacy system. Uh, we'll have to cut around that little word, but uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I, that, that's, that's really it. Here we are. Cool, cool. And then, and so now we have Benji. Benji's from corporate, AKA Molecule. Um, <laughs> just kidding, in, in all seriousness, he's like part of the team. And so I'll just, I'll let him, I'll let him tell, tell himself, tell you guys a little bit more about himself as well. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks, Verbs. Um, so yeah, my name is Benji. I'm a product manager at Molecule. Um, first time I came across HairDAO was, um, I think on Twitter. Um, and to be frank, I thought it was a joke. I didn't really understand it. Um, why are these guys obsessed with hair? Maybe it's for losing your hair if you have too much hair, um, which I certainly do on every, everywhere but my head. And yeah, it really took kind of sitting down with you guys and really hearing your, your journey and your story and to realize how serious this really is and 
you know, the impacts that hair loss has on people that are experiencing it. And so, you know, once I heard your story and, you know, realized how little funding was going into hair loss research because the NIH doesn't consider um, androgenic alopecia disease, um, the more I kind of, you know, wanted to get behind you guys and support you and, and this massive community that you've assembled that's all super interested in, in coming up with new options. You know, as you guys kind of alluded to, um, after I started going through my own yeah. hair loss, yeah, yeah, it's happening. Um, <laughs> I, I started to realize how much snake oil was out there. And, you know, it's basically a competition to see who has the best search engine optimization to sell you their, you know, questionable, you know, therapy. Very and true. so I think that I think that kind of leads into, you know, what we'd love to hear from you first, Ralph, which is, you know, there's so much, you know, garbage on the internet. Can you please break it down? Um, in as much, you know, depth as you would like or breadth as you'd like, um, you know, what what do we understand about hair loss? Um, what do we understand about the hair follicle and, and why it stops, um, you know, churning yeah, you out might, hair you might as well um, at a certain What do age. we understand about the universe, right? Can we please <laughs> break this down to more uh, digestible uh, questions? Um, Total. Give, give, me, give me one a bit more concrete. Well, well, so, so I think, so I think what, what we'll say is, so just before we keep going, I'm also Andrew, other co-founder oh, yes, of, of Now. Yeah. <laughs> Besides being the world's greatest moderator, I'm co-founder of Now. And like Beck said, uh, suffered from hair loss from the time I was 20 years old. Uh, also, you know, got involved in crypto through investing and, and then sort of saw Now as this perfect opportunity uh, to realign incentives in an industry that I think has been held back more by incentives rather than any sort of biological or technological uh, progress. Um, I think one of the interesting things to sort of frame the Harry Matters podcast that Ralph, you and I were talking about uh, beforehand, um, I think I had mentioned like, oh, we're going to talk about cutting edge, you know, spicy research in hair loss. And I think you made a great point um, was that the most important thing is that we actually establish uh, a foundation for what we currently know in hair loss um, throughout the course of this podcast, because I think so much of, of I guess, the, the lack of progress that's been made in the space uh, is really due to due to the fact that there's so much sort of fundamental mapping um, that we don't understand. I think there's so many different pathways, different genes. We, we're not sure if we need to upregulate them, downregulate them, yeah. and all that. And so I think what's most important is that we establish a true sort of solid foundation that we can then build off on to eventually solve hair loss. So I think that's what we'll cover in in following episodes of the Harry Matters podcast, along with sort of you know you debating um, sort of hopefully debating some of the other uh, hair loss researchers on maybe some of the more controversial topics, and then also using it as sort of an opportunity to, to answer a lot of the questions, uh, you know, that I know our community is constantly like, can you ask Ralph this? Can you ask Ralph that? Um, and so so we'll, we'll use this podcast as an opportunity to, to give you a way to speak to them as well. Yeah, um, you have already been giving me hair loss with all these questions. <laughs> it's, more, uh, it's a yeah. It's a shame. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so, so with, without that, uh, you know, with, without further ado, I think we should, we should hop into the thyroid hormone study, uh, which. Uh, Andrew, Andrew, before we do that, maybe yep. I should give a, 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 a little less flippant answer to, to what Benji asked. Um, yes. So, yeah, uh, yeah. The, the, uh, I think medic, medical progress um, comes uh, historically has come uh, in, in, in two forms, right? One is serendipity. Uh, somebody just observed something and did something and uh, lo and behold, it, it gave you an effect you wanted, even if you didn't understand why at the time. Uh, that basically is what happened with minoxidil and finasteride, right? Um, this was, uh, the, these were the, the fruits of serendipity. Um, or medical progress comes from understanding the biology of the organ you want to target uh, more deeply than you have done before. And uh, that has been a challenge in human hair research because most of the research, also most of the, basically all of the funded research is mouse research. And uh, the mouse hair follicle and the human hair follicle are not the same. Uh, they underlie different controls. They have all sorts of different um, differences uh, in their response to the same agent um, as, as human uh, follicles, which need to be taken into account. So one of the major challenges we are, we are facing uh, and that has um, kept me busy for the last two, two, three decades, is uh, to really understand how much of the ton of uh, hair biology we have learned from the mouse and the fantastic mouse models that exist is really transferable to the human system. Um, 
and what is not. Uh, and since that is always very difficult to answer, my take has been, let's do all this research on how the human hair circle works as much as possible on the human follicle itself. And uh, do this in, in hair follicles one gets from hair transplant surgeons, that one organ cultures, uh, or uh, in scalp skin that one transplants on a living mouse and that you can then study the human organ on the mouse uh, for a very long time. Um, and, and that has been dr uh, driving our research uh, approach. And the, the, um, the other problem is hair loss. Now, when people talk about hair loss, uh, they, they often talk about completely different things and they're comparing apples with pears. So when we are talking about male pattern balding, that already is something else than female pattern balding, a totally different uh, uh, clinical problem, even though it shares many similarities. And that, again, is something completely different than alopecia areata or chemotherapy-induced hair loss and so on. So when we talk hair loss, you guys are interested in androgenetic alopecia, right? There we have another problem, that there is so far no really great mouse model that imitates uh, human androgenetic alopecia sufficiently other than taking human scalp and transplanting on a mouse and then uh, see, uh, do I get the, the effects, um, the hair growth uh, effects that I want uh, on this in this human scalp uh, skin transplanted on a mouse. The, the other problem, uh, one has in the field and that, that has inhibited progress in the field is androgenetic alopecia um, is, a, is a double-edged sword. So on the one hand, um, you, you, you want to reduce the daily hair loss. That's what you, the hair shafts you shed uh, when you comb or shower. And on the other hand, you need to, if, first of all, stop the miniaturization, the progressive miniaturization of hair follicles. Uh, that you see uh, beautifully at your and my hairline, Benji, right? Um, Andrew keeps hiding it, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, right? So that we need to stop and then we need to reverse it. And again, um, how do we do that? How can we, how can we study this? How can we model this? And uh, in order to make breakthroughs in treating androgenetic alopecia, particularly male pattern balding, um, we need to have the right models and we are only now getting there and the mouse pure mouse models will never be the right model for androgenetic alopecia Absolutely. ralph do you mind if i ask another question about that Please. super quickly so yeah it's it's one of the things we talk about quite a bit at molecule which is this um model validity which is yes. the predictive power of your disease model on yes. the actual phenotype or disease of interest so if you don't mind me being like very explicit like how do we know that your disease models are actually more predictive of male pattern balding yeah, or that's, that's um, androgenetic well, yes, alopecia. That's, that's, a, that's a necessary question. So uh, it's all about validity of the model. Uh, and and uh, validity, beyond validity, is you, you, wanna, you wanna see how much does your model give you a pheno copy of the human disease. Um, so the, uh, the, the best way of judging is, um, is whether uh, or there, there are two ways of judging it. First of all, do I still have the phenotype of the human disease? And to me, male pattern balding is a disease because people suffer from it, right? Uh, it's not just a cosmetic um, problem. It is, if you suffer from it, it is a disease. It makes you sick. Um, does the mouse model or the whatever model you use, does it, does it imitate enough of the clinical phenotype? That's the first one. The second one uh, is, does the model um, respond to proven drugs uh, that work on a patient? Does it respond in the same manner? That's the second um, uh, benchmark. And um, the model uh, uh, Amos Gila in, in Haifa and I uh, have, have recently published where you transplant balding human scalp on a skid mouse um, does exactly all of that. It preserves the uh, the miniaturization of the hair follicles by themselves. They do not get retransformed into large hair follicles. But if you give finasteride or minoxidil or uh, platelet-rich plasma injections, you can partially reverse this. This, to me, um, is the litmus test for uh, model validity. And that's the only in vivo model we, 
we really have so far that I think ticks the right uh, boxes. However, it's a very difficult model. How many patients are going to give you a, a chunk of their scalp and, and allow you to transplant it on a mouse, right? So you need you need um, models before that in vivo stage. And that's um, another surrogate model uh, on the so-called ex vivo level, a preclinical model we are working with. We take totally normal human scalp hair follicles um, from occipital skin right here uh, or from frontal temporal, and you culture them uh, isolated in organ culture or in follicular units together with the surrounding skin. And uh, you expose them to androgens. Um, you, uh, uh, and then you see, uh, is the follicle showing at least some of the pheno phenomena that you would see during balding? You will not see the entire miniaturization process in this preclinical model because uh, the follicle cannot be kept alive long enough in the test tube, right? But uh, in the few days, you will, for example, see that um, the, the key inductive uh, fibroblasts that um, control hair growth in the so-called derma papilla of the hair follicle, that they keep moving out of the follicle uh, if you stimulate them with androgens and you can treat them with some drugs that prevent that. So that, to me, is a surrogate model uh, that you use to, uh, to narrow down the candidates um, that you, uh, you then um, want to, in a second step, uh, also study on the in vivo part. And you can also use this model for something else that uh, we have shown uh, is actually very powerful. So there are lots of drugs. Actually, they're not a lot, but some drugs that uh, give you unwanted hair growth. Too much hair growth where you don't want it. Cyclosporin A um, is uh, is perhaps the, the most classical. Of minoxidil itself, uh, also another classical example. And uh, what you can use these hair follicle organ culture models beautifully for is to figure out what is the mechanism of action, how the follicle gets stimulated. And then you can, we prove that this is possible. Uh, you, after you have figured out the mechanism of action, you can then target it directly with a much less toxic drug. And perhaps even with a cosmetic compound. And uh, for cyclosporin, we have shown that this can be done. And none of this had to be done on a mouse. It could be done in microdissected organ cultured scalp hair follicles. So if you write, if, it depends on the questions you ask whether the model is suitable or not. Do not overstretch. Uh, what your model can deliver, be aware of the, its limitations, but suck it dry as much as you can. <laughs> yeah. And and so the, the 2008 study, Ralph, that you did with thyroid hormones was on, uh, as you described, hair follicles in organ culture. And we very much view this study right now as the sort of, uh, you know, the, the precedent, or sorry, not the precedent, wrong word. What's the? Continuation. The, conti the continuation of that. Um, it is, it is, yes. Yeah. And I've been wanting to do this study for a long time until you convinced somebody, I still don't know who, uh, to fund it. Um, so, great, great. Yeah. So, okay, very good, very good. So, um, let, let, me, let, me, let me go uh, a little bit back to, to the time when I was still uh, working as a clinical dermatologist and was running um, hair clinics in Berlin. Um, so, I had many patients that... Um, had either too much thyroid hormone or too little of it. So hypothyroidism or hyperthyroidism. You know that uh, thyroid diseases are among the most common of all diseases and thyroid hormones, L-thyroxine, uh, are among the most frequently prescribed drugs of all time. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, I remember, uh, the if you measured in these patients, uh, the serum levels of their thyroid hormones, um, they seemed normal, and yet they had still had hair loss, uh, or the hair was brittle, uh, and it was somehow abnormal. And then I remembered when I uh, came back from my from my adventure at Yale um, to, to Berlin and started my, my dermatology residency, um, I was interviewed by the former chairman of the department, uh, who was quite a dinosaur, uh, but a very smart guy. And, and he said, what, pals, you, you work on hair? I tell you something you don't know about hair. Uh, and he had actually figured out um, that uh, the most sensitive indicator 
of whether or not you have been perfectly medicated at exactly the right level with thyroid hormone was not the serum level of the hormone, but the elasticity of the hair shaft. And uh, so he went to, to, to big length uh, uh, at the Federal Institute of Materials Testing in Berlin, uh, which has been around since imperial times. Uh, and they, they, they just basically stretch uh, um, a, a fiber and they measure its elasticity. And the change in the elasticity, um, um, this dinosaur uh, uh, educated me, was the most sensitive indicator whether a thyroid hormone or uh, thyroid disease patient uh, was perfectly substituted or not. Hmm. I forgot about that. And many years later, we said, now, now finally, let's test what do thyroid hormones do if you dump them directly uh, on a hair follicle. At that time, it wasn't even known uh, whether there was any direct effect of thyroid on, uh, hormones on the follicle, because if you have a problem with your thyroid hormones, they regulate so many different genes that it could have been a completely indirect effect, that they changed some other hormones or metabolic factors, which then indirectly impacted on hair mm -hmm. growth. But in this model, we could, for the first time, show that the thyroid hormones directly bind to recept thyroid hormone receptors, and they directly talk to the hair follicle, uh, and they change much more than we had expected. Not only did they prolong the growth uh, phase, the antigen phase of hair follicles in organ culture, but they also stimulated the production of certain hair shaft keratins. And that, in retrospect, could explain this elasticity change. Because if you change the composition of hair keratins, that also impacts on the elasticity of your hair shaft fibers. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, it taught us that. It also showed us that the pigmentation of the follicle got stimulated. Um, that uh, had indeed been reported by some old endocrinologists when they had started giving L-thyroxine to patients. Some of them had reported that they had some repigmentation of graying hair. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, and we also showed that uh, a couple of growth factors uh, that are important for hair growth uh, are upregulated and those that inhibit hair growth get downregulated. So it all ticked the right boxes and we left it there. From there to, um, and, and in, in this uh, organ culture setup, you always dump your test compound into the culture medium, which and the follicle then floats around in this medium that imitates a systemic application, right? Like, like an oral drug or an uh, IV injected drug. But what nobody has done so far is to topically apply the hormone. And that is what I try to convince you guys of, and uh, apparently that worked. Um, uh, and we said, well, we have this beautiful skin organ culture, scalp skin organ culture model, where we can take a chunk of your scalp skin. And if any one of you uh, wants to donate some, please do so, because we're always short of it, no? Uh, in the lab. And then you um, administer the test compound, in this, case, in this case, thyroid hormones, in a fairly viscous uh, vehicle so that it doesn't seep over the sides of the punch of tissue. Um, and you see, does the follicle even see uh, what you deliver there? Does it respond to it? And that's the experiments we have been running uh, over the last couple of uh, weeks. First, we needed to work for, for a few months on finding the right vehicle. And I hope uh, that um, uh, in another two months or so, we will have the first data. Uh, does the follicle even care? If I topically administer in this vehicle, we found um, uh, thyroid hormone, and there are these two, right? Triurothyroid T3 or uh, thyroxine T4. And that was the other thing we had found in this old study, 2008. Uh, in the book, in the, if you open an endocrinology textbook, they tell you, ah, T4 itself doesn't work. Um, it first has to be um, enzymatically uh, transformed uh, in the cell that has taken it up into T3, which is then the active hormone, and that binds to the thyroid hormone receptor, and that then moves into the nucleus, uh, and, and there binds to uh, primarily genes that have a promoter with a, with a so-called uh, thyroid uh, hormone response element. Um, yeah, but we noticed if we looked, for example, at pigmentary response, responses of the hair follicle, um, they were stronger when we administered T4 alone than we gave uh, T3 in, 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 in about, uh, uh, not in the same dose, but in a bioequivalent dose. Mm -hmm. um, 
and that's surprising. And then when we looked into the, because that shouldn't happen, right? T3 should always be more effective. Mm-hmm. Um, so then it turned out when we looked more into the literature that yes, other thyroid hormone researchers had noticed something similar in cell cultures that apparently T4 can also have uh, its own um, uh, conversion independent effects. And if you look more into this, it gets all much more complicated and confusing. Uh, thyroid hormones do not only have this classic effect that they, um, in the cytoplasm of a cell, bind to a thyroid hormone receptor, and then together with the travel into the nucleus, they are membrane, fast membrane effects they can exert. And T3 and T4 may differ in those, and lots of different signaling pathways uh, that you don't find in the classical endocrinology textbook um, are also activated. So we are basically, uh, to be perfectly honest, um, working with a black box system here. We, we have our response organ, we dump something on it, um, and uh, we don't really know which mechanism uh, will be switched on, and we don't really care. Uh, what we want, uh, because we're pragmatists, right? What we want is that the follicle gives us the response we want to see. More energy, that's the most important one, that the follicle stays longer in energy. Only when it stays longer in energy can it make uh, a good hair shaft, a good, well-pigmented hair shaft. And in addition, if it's already miniaturized, or if it's in the process of becoming miniaturized, it needs to be an energy in order to become larger again, that a velous follicle can become a terminal hair follicle again. Mm-hmm. So energy prolongation is... Uh, is the non plus ultra it's the it's the most important prerequisite uh for um for uh, uh um uh re- repeat for for inducing hair growth uh guys i lost you here somehow are you are you uh seeing, yeah, yeah. Still yeah, seeing we, and hearing me can you can you hear us yeah ah yeah so so just to give to give a quick overview of just like for the for the audience i guess of, of just the study that we're running with ralph Right, we're testing T3, T4 thyroid hormones on human scalp skin organ cultures. <laughs> uh oh, technological difficulties. Uh, but I'll just I'll just keep it going. Um, so we're testing T3, T4 thyroid hormone in human scalp skin organ cultures, uh, and we're testing at, I believe at two separate dosages. Um, like Ralph said, we're effectively dumping the thyroid hormones on the scalp skin, seeing if it generates hair growth. If the results are positive, we're going to run, well, we'll vote to run um, sort of like follow-up studies, uh, testing combination therapy of the T3 and T4 combined together. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll say this. I was, I was wanting to ask Ralph, he has a million ideas why he, why he chose the thyroid hormone study first. Uh, but I will say that this, this study passed overwhelmingly in our Discord uh, I think the vote was 94 to two. So 94 in favor, two against. Yeah. Um, why don't we Why don't we wait for Ralph to hop back on? And in the meantime, how about we skip to, to a little bit more of the Dow system versus the traditional system of research? And yeah. as well as the IPNFT Mint that we actually just carried out with Benji like 30 minutes ago to actually Mint the the JDA that we signed with Ralph, the, the ownership agreement onto the Ethereum blockchain. Um, I just have a question for Ralph, real quick. Oh, here we go. Okay. Uh, are you um, are you hearing me? I somehow uh, you disappeared. I probably disappeared too. <laughs> no, you you didn't disappear for us. But but so so Ralph, just I was I was giving just a just a high level overview for everybody of the yep. study. So organ cultures. T3, T4, uh, scalp skin organ cultures, T3, T4, where you were testing two dosages of, mm-hmm. of each of the thyroid hormones or just one dosage of each? Yeah, we, 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 uh, we, uh, I think we begin with one dose of each and then we test them both together uh, and, and uh, uh, combined. The, the problem, our, our biggest problem is the availability of scalp skin. So right. um, when, when, uh, when I started in human hair research, uh, the um, the facelift um, surgery techniques uh, still were quite brutal. Um, you were basically cranking up a lot of your facial skin and then rip, cutting out a big strip. Uh, to my great distress, uh, these um, surgical techniques have become much more refined. Therefore, there is a lot less scalp skin available for me to do experimentation on. 
Um, so I, uh, I uh, really am struggling now to find enough scalp skin. Um, and, and I've gone, uh, I've gone to the uh, to a great ex, uh, to, to great um, or undergone great efforts. Now, now I have, uh, we are opening a, a laboratory in Sao Paulo in, in, in Brazil uh, because that's the mecca of plastic surgery. And uh, hopefully we'll get we'll get more um, access to scalp skin. And if there's anyone uh, of the hair Dao uh, uh, crowd here that considers having a facelift, no, you better make sure that no scalp skin ever gets discarded and ends up in my lab, no? So, so I was about to, I was about to say, Ralph, that that's actually one of the biggest thing that's blown me away is one of the actual biggest barriers to hair loss research getting done is literally the available of of scalp yes. skin. Yes. Um, and through various like transplant doctor partnerships and, and also through our community, that's a big thing that HairDAO is looking to contribute to the space in terms of decreasing friction in as many points as possible. And I think one of those areas that we're very much going to look to towards and in, in is is actually sort of facilitating the, the scalp skin for, for valuable research. And, and I want to ask... No, no, let me make one important uh, yep. comment on this because this really, really matters. Um, uh, it's it's the eye of the needle. Access to uh, uh, to human scalp skin and human hair follicles uh, determines uh, the, the the pace of progress in human hair research. And mm -hmm. uh, if if you can change uh, the modus operandi by um, increasing the access, uh, progress will exponentially um, follow. So uh, this this is so critical uh, that I can't emphasize this enough. So thanks for yeah. pointing this out. No, definitely. And that's that's actually on the roadmap for us. Um, so so just before we, we keep going, I, I wanted to say so I, t I said when you were off the off the screen for a little bit, this vote passed like resoundingly in our community, 94 in favor, two against. I won't tell you who the two against were, but uh, but no one on this on this podcast. But but anyway, uh, like I guess the question is, you have a million ideas. Uh, you've been in this space for so long. Why was the thyroid hormone the first study you proposed for the hair dye community? Simple answer, low hanging fruit. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so first of all, uh, when, whenever you, you use a drug for uh, treating a supposedly cosmetic problem, right? Which we know is not a cosmetic problem if you psychologically suffer from it, um, then, then you are really challenged uh, with a, a huge um, um, amount of uh, regulatory hurdles that you have to overcome at, at very high prices, at very high cost. So using a drug that has already been uh, introduced to the markets for decades, where, where the toxicology is perfectly defined, there's hardly any agent in all of human medicine uh, about whose side effects we know more than about uh, L-thyroxine, right? Uh, that's already easy. Then on top of that, it's, it's a compound that we already know from prior research um, is perfectly topically applicable. So most drugs that you want to administer to human scalp skin topically, so externally, struggle with making it down uh, into the follicle. We don't expect this to be a key problem here. We still have to prove it because we haven't done it before, right? But the likelihood that we will get uh, the sucker down there uh, is high mm -hmm. uh, and it's probably higher than with most other molecules we could have tested and the the other thing it's uh, uh, pragmatism this stuff is dirt cheap mm -hmm. um, no big pharma industry uh, interest uh, in L-thyroxine uh, or, or T3 they can't make a big buck out of it anyway anyway unless they would develop a topical formulation that they could then patent which is, of course, the hope we will be able to do together one day, right? How far we get there um, uh, will to be seen, but that's, you know, that's a ship that will only sail once we have seen that we get any effects with the vehicle that we have already chosen, right? Once we are there, then we think about, oh, how, now can we, how can we patent protect the vehicle? But so it's low-hanging fruit is the major, major um, the, the most honest um, response, but there's another one. So... I'm biologically really, really fascinated by what thyroid hormones do uh, to skin, and particularly to human skin. So we have known from uh, for for ages, ever since dermatology as a field um, uh, came into existence, and, and people began to recognize thyroid diseases, 
physicians have known how strong the skin and the hair follicle respond to too little or too, uh, too much thyroid hormones. And yet it hasn't been carefully studied. Um, we, we dumped glucocorticoids, so steroid hormones, um, vitamin D, retinoids, all steroid hormones. We dumped them on a daily basis on human skin. We treat plenty of skin diseases with this. And all of these hormones have been big breakthroughs in dermatology. They have changed the face of dermatology. And what is the one hormone we never use in dermatology? Thyroid hormones. What a shame. Well, I think two years ago, three years ago, I, I wrote an essay, I published an essay where it said uh, L-thyroxine is the Cinderella uh, waiting to dance on the floor of dermatotherapy, right? Um, and that's exactly what I think it is. Um, but in contrast to Cinderella, this hormone uh, is also a... Uh, um, a really, really potent agent. One should not chronically administer. Uh, it turned out um, this uh, uh, is fairly recent studies that uh, people that um, have been taking for many years or even decades uh, L-thyroxine as a substitution therapy seem to have a higher rate of some types of cancer. Mm -hmm. This is this is no surprise because um, uh, thyroid hormones among the many things it does, uh, it's, a, it's like a, a metabolic uh, turbo machine. Uh, it, it really enhances uh, energy metabolism uh, and many metabolic processes, it enhances proliferation, so that uh, if you are unlucky enough to have a higher propensity to develop uh, cancer anyway, and then you chronically administer this hormone systemically, this in the long run could be a problem. This is why I think we need to administer it topically and we need to administer it pulsatile. So let's say for a week or two or three, uh, and then we need to give the skin a, a, a rest for a while. Um, and, and then we administer it again in the hope that this circumvents uh, any potentially um, concerning side effects. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, just to, to follow up on that, and I think this is the question that like a lot of the community members will care about a lot, or, or two questions. The, the first is if you had to sort of guess right now, put it like put a date on it, when would you say we'll have the initial results from this study um, to report back? And then second, if, if this went well, what, what would be the time frame to actually get a new product onto the market? Yeah, I, I think we will we will have uh, in the summer already. We will know um, whether whether we get in our organ scalp skin organ culture model, whether we get a decent biologically and clinically meaningful hair follicle response. Mm -hmm. That's what we will know with the topical application um, mode and the vehicles we have selected, which is already a big one, right? Because nobody has ever shown this that topically applied thyroid hormones does anything to a human follicle. So if we can show that and hopefully tick the right boxes and say, oh, anagen is prolonged, maybe a little positive effect on hair shaft formation, maybe the right growth factors up regulated and the right ones down regulated that are hair growth inhibitory, uh, that's, then we know we're on the right track. And that will be the summer. From there, uh, to be able to, um, to then uh, run a clinical trial, uh, which is, of course, the one thing that matters, uh, double-blind, placebo-controlled, uh, prospective, randomized uh, clinical trial. Uh, that depends on what the regulatory agencies will demand in terms of additional safety data and toxicology data. Because, uh, yes, uh, thyroid hormones have been topically applied to mice where they stimulate hair growth, where they, uh, where they, where they stimulate um, uh, wound healing, but they have not been topically applied to humans. So regulatory agencies will want to know if you for weeks uh, on end administer a potent, this potent thyroid hormone um, to the scalp, how much ends up in your blood? Mm -hmm. And could this give you hyperthyroidism? Could this give you uh, thyroid hyperfunction, right? Uh, and how will the thyroid gland respond to this? Um, and what one usually does to test this is not only look at the blood level of uh, the, uh, the uh, administered thyroid hormone, but you also um, look at the neuroendocrine system that regulates thyroid hormones. So you, you may remember that uh, the thyroid hormone is made in the thyroid gland normally. 
And thyroid hormone is so potent that in contrast to most other hormones, which can be made by all sorts of cells and tissues, thyroid hormones apparently can only be made in the thyroid gland. And it's like, like in a little uh, nuclear power plant contained in there because this shit is potent. Um, <laughs> and, and so biology wants to keep it, wants to keep it contained. In, in a unit where it's released, it's highly controlled by the brain and the pituitary gland. Um, and so uh, the, the hypothalamus uh, pro produces a hormone called TRH uh, that then tells the pituitary gland, make thyrotropin, TSH, which then tells the thyroid gland, okay, give us a bit more of this powerful stuff. And then if more gets released, that talks back to the brain and says, stop giving us uh, TRH signals. And that then uh, reduces the production of thyroid, uh, 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 thyrotropin by the pituitary gland, and then the thyroid gland downregulates its production again. So we need to also check, and I'm sure that uh, regulatory agencies will demand that, uh, that we check in the blood after topical application, how has that impacted on these neuroendocrine controls? Uh, you can measure the blood level of uh, thyrotropin very easily. It's being done routinely in internal medicine clinics around the world on a daily basis so and that depends the time uh, until uh, you will then be uh, permitted to run a formal clinical trial mm -hmm. the thing we have going there uh, for us that should accelerate this and shorten this time span which can be terribly long for most new drugs is that we can always argue well look we are giving the hormone already systemically to patients in high doses for decades no uh, so how damaging can it possibly be if if uh, a, a fraction of this makes it into the blood after scalp application uh, and then we'll see how the regulatory agencies respond to this right Definitely. so i would i would hope this goes fairly fast let's say within a year which would be really fast uh, in the pharmacology world this is fast um and we're talking pharmacology here. This is not cosmetic what we are doing, right? We are taking a very powerful hormone here and we dump it on your scalp uh, and hope only good things happen. Mm -hmm. That's the other thing. Why we do all this testing in our scalp skin organ culture, we also look out for potential adverse effects um, so that we anticipate before we put this on a living human scalp, uh, we already want to get indications. Well, are we calling in false friends here? With this, mm. uh, with this hormone application, are we are we are we um, tickling the wrong signaling systems uh, that we better don't touch? Um, so, so that information we will also have. Got you. Got and so and so this I got another question for you, and this one's actually from a from a Discord community member. Shout out Banana Fun. Um, but he wants to know sort of like what the theoretical side effect profile could look like, also the efficacy compared to minoxidil. Obviously, e efficacy could be more of an unknown, but would we expect sort of like hyperthyroidism? Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so basically, if you want to make it short, um, if you want to know the potential mechanism, the potential adverse effects, uh, you just have to, to get yourself a, a box of L-thyroxine and look at the long leaflet there of all the side effects that have been described there. The likelihood that you will get any of this, I would say, is below 5%. Uh, because the dose that will arise uh, arrive in the system will be so much lower than if you take a tablet of L-thyroxine, right? Um, the, the, the other, the other um, big question that we don't know, and we hopefully will also learn this within this year, if you administer topically to the skin, um, l uh, thyroxine, it first has to be uh, metabolized, in, it will be metabolized in skin uh, into T3. How much of this even then makes it uh, into the system? How much gets trapped in the skin? And ideally in the hair follicles, which have expressed a lot of receptors for it, so they sort of suck it up. Um, so that, that's one, one thing. Uh, then if you directly administer T3 that will immediately bind to the receptors that should get even more trapped in the skin than uh, uh, L-thyroxine. All that is important to keep in mind if you uh, try to anticipate the potential adverse effects. So the lower the percentage that 
uh, a compound that is topically applied actually makes it into the system, the lower the likelihood that you will see any of these adverse effects. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But they cannot be excluded until proven otherwise. Yeah. It, it would, I mean, in the end, I'm a physician, so it would be uh, um, completely irresponsible if I were talking down uh, the, uh, the, um, the, the potential risks only because I'm so excited about this stuff, no? Yeah. That would be irresponsible. I'm not talking it down. <laughs> well, mm -hmm. what's interesting is you're, you're actually play, playing it safer than even industry today. Um, like there are people who do Tastride mesotherapies become a pretty popular treatment. Um, and I've looked into it and you'll have some people saying that, oh, uh, it doesn't go systemic. It only just sits on your scalp perfectly. Then other people saying, oh, it's just as if you took the pill, you might as well just take Tastride and save yourself. Yeah, I agree. $1,000, yeah. Um, so, I mean, yes. the people are doing so many, I mean, let's, let's, let's be honest about this. So, there are so many hair nerds out there, no? Um, uh, a present company excluded, uh, that, that uh, uh, have absolutely no inhibitions of doing all sorts of things uh, to their hair, even though it's, it's, uh, it's, it's nonsense science, based on nonsense science, uh, or, or just based on what some, some influencer, uh, who often doesn't even know what, what the hell uh, they are talking about, um, uh, is recommending uh, or what some marketing department has has uh, whipped up uh, i mean i'm totally amazed at how entirely irrational people uh, are if it comes to hair and how much they uh, like to how much they are or how little they inhibit uninhibited from making themselves into a guinea pig um <laughs> this is to me uh, mind-boggling Gives me almost people, hell. People want their hair, Ralph. People want their yeah, hair. Can we, can we please take a bit, a little bit more rational approach here? Uh, and, and we have the right model to test whether whether something does work or not. If it does work, well, then in our models, then I dump it on myself. And mm -hmm. only uh, if uh, these models have not um, uh, raised any any red flags, right? What mm -hmm. might happen? So yeah. be a bit more responsible. You have only one body. You have two million hair follicles, one body. Be a bit more careful with it. So, so Ralph, we have one more community question. Then we'll go into your experience, like this, the, how this experience has been sort of getting funding from HairDAO. And then we'll sort of close it off with the IPNFT Mint. But the, I guess the last community question that we're getting, and I'm, I'm not sure who this is from, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say Jumpman because this is... This is nah, no, nah, his, his name is David, David Newf. Okay. Okay. Oh, okay. There we go. Uh, David Davi boy. Um, so why are the, why are macaws not used more frequently, um, as a hair loss model? How good are they as a model? Macaws. Macaques. 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 Yeah. I was, I was I getting said it out loud. <laughs> You're talking about the stump tailed macaque. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's actually a wonderful model. Uh, it's a beautiful model. So the, the stump tailed macaque, as you, as you probably have read, uh, is, is the only animal model. Uh, that gets male pattern balding, right? Um, and that has been around uh, for a very long time, um, since the 1970s or 19, 1980s. Uh, and it was um, um, pioneered by the, I think, the, the Oregon Primate Research Center. Um, problem is, problem is uh, that non-human primate research has really fallen out of favor. There, is, there are some, some drugs where it's mandatory to test them on non-human primates. Uh, for example, uh, all sorts of uh, uh, drugs that, that target the brain have to be tested on them. Um, but for a supposedly cosmetic problem, to test this on non-human primates, uh, you, can, you can imagine the outcry, uh, the outcry of the uh, animal rights um, community that this will cause. Even though I have to say, um, and uh, I'm, I'm of course guilty of having done lots of animal experience myself in a former life, um, the, we are now facing a situation where there is so much clamor to not use any animal models for whatever new drug uh, uh, you develop and rather use humans right away as guinea pigs. Uh, try to go from cell culture uh, and maybe some 3D constructs of cells uh, straight to the human being, no? Um, I find that as a physician entirely irresponsible. Um, 
you can never reproduce in cell culture, not even in 3D models, the complexity of the human organism. Um, and uh, using primate models and mouse models uh, uh, is, a, is a, a necessary step um, to, uh, to avoid that we're dumping this immediately on humans um, until we have very carefully seen what could happen, for example, in primates. So to the, to the question, why is it not being used anymore, this wonderful primate model, uh, it's a shame it's not being used uh, as much as it should have, because that model um, has taught us more about how a follicle gets miniaturized and, and how it uh, can be reversed, this miniaturization, than any other model has so far. Um, now I hope our new uh, human skin xenotransplant mouse model will replace the primate model. Mm -hmm. But I can only say that was a wonderful model. Mm -hmm. And not to use it uh, uh, scientifically is a crime. Yeah. Okay, awesome. Awesome. So I'm seeing a bunch more community questions now, but we'll save those for for following podcasts because we, yeah. again, we will do this again with Ralph. But But I think now that the good part, and this is the part maybe where you can grill us a little bit, um, is to now pivot to to what your experience has been like. Receive, you know, you've received funding a good amount from the traditional sort of system, if you will, and now this is your first time receiving funding from Herdow. I think uh, I think it'd be interesting as because at the end of the day, our our at the Herdow's end goal is to effectively make it as easy as possible for a traditional researcher like yourself, an online native researcher uh, like so many of the people we have in our Discord, or all, all the other traditional researchers in the world. Uh, to submit ideas to the community, and ideally for for just the best ideas to win out, sort of credentials aside, the best ideas win out. Um, we fund those and actually execute those studies. Um, obviously, you are our first sort of guinea pig in this regard, and so there there was some friction that I think I think there was friction where we've worked for the next time it'll be better. Um, but it'd be interesting to sort of hear hear your take on it, and then we'll give sort of. I guess a response and sort of the way the ways we're thinking about like further facilitating all right, all right. more research done more frictionlessly. So my, my initial response when you guys contacted me um, was a little bit like Benji's response. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I didn't understand the word you were talking about, uh, and and th this comes from a guy who is who has already trouble using his cell phone, right? Uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm 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 not really in 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 any of these internet fora and. Uh, uh, if I if I manage to to open my email and send even a response, I consider myself fortunate. Uh, so you operate in a space out there in cyberspace that uh, is very alien to me. You know? uh, when I read a paper, I read it usually in a printout. Uh, imagine that. <laughs> um, so um, the the uh, the world you you operate in uh, is, is is was alien to me, um, but I realized, of course, the potential uh, that it has, and um, that. The, 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 the business model that the people that actually want, um, that have a vested interest in seeing research progress should also uh, not only have a vote in where the funding is going, but should also somehow contribute to uh, finding the money that then uh, propels the research. That model uh, makes perfect sense. And I, I've had a prior experience with this kind of approach. Um, in another hair disease called alopecia areata, this um, most common autoimmune hair loss disorder. And uh, the National Alopecia Areata Foundation in the US, ba based in California, um, has do been doing over the last couple of decades, pioneering work in collecting money from donors, from families with affected patients, uh, which then um, brought the best scientists in the field together. Uh, and first of all, uh, told them, well, guys, we really are, are hurting here. Do something. Um, uh, and then had the scientists talk uh, to each other to figure out what are the research priorities. And you should have seen the early discussions. Not everyone disagreeing, disagreeing with everyone else uh, on what the um, what the, uh, the the priorities were. I was saying one thing. Somebody else said, "Oh, that's all nonsense, Ralph. We uh, we uh, we should be doing it completely different." I say you bark up the wrong tree. And, you know, this is how it went. And now all of this is happening not in a room. It's happening uh, on the Internet uh, and in real time often. So um, this this is uh, it's exciting. I mean, of course, uh, the more different nerds you have talking to each other, the more difficult it gets uh, to get a constructive discussion going, right? And sooner mm -hmm. or later, um, 
the ball has to drop and you have to take decisions. So what really is the uh, priority here? Uh, and sooner or later, uh, one, one also needs to listen to some experts, right? Hopefully not always to the same ones. Um, but in general, I thought the, 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 the approach you have taken um, is not only uh, creative, it's also necessary, it's democratic. Um, science should never be confused with democracy. Um, science uh, has also nothing to do with beliefs, right? We're not in church, uh, shul, uh, mosque, uh, anything here. We, uh, science uh, deals with concepts that are more or less persuasive based on the currently available uh, data and on logical arguments that you can make to interpret these data. And then only time will tell uh, whether the concepts were, were true and uh, whether the, the working models you, you operate with today uh, hold true, only time will tell. But there's not, nothing that uh, uh, has to do with beliefs. And that's what I liked about you guys too. You were very rational. Not only, even though you were, uh, most of you don't have a biology background, right? Um, you really knew the, the literature better than many dermatologists and, uh, and, and even better than some hair researchers. So that was almost scary. Um, you were, out of a sudden, you had to be so goddamn careful of what you said, not because uh, you were in, in, in real time checking already on the internet. Is that really true what he's telling us? No? My God, I'm not used to that. Um, but it's good. It's healthy. It um, actually fertilizes uh, constructive debate if you keep it under control, right? Absolutely. I like Absolutely. it. I love it. Awesome. And so that was a kind, that was a really kind answer. I will give a funny little antidote about sort of how early we are in the decentralized science space. And that is when we actually wanted to fund Ralph, we keep all of our, or the HairDAO's assets on chain. And so the, the process of funding Ralph, we actually had to go through, we had to send the money to his son's Coinbase account, who could then forward the funds to the Cutanian bank account. And so I think it's just a- yeah, At least the guy knew what a coin account is, no? Right, um, exactly. And yeah, so I, no idea. Yeah. So there's there's a ways to go with the tools. We have great partners, Rain now, who are who are helping us out with that. Um, and hopefully, we'll continue to make that process more seamless in the future. We're still early, but I think that's sort of where the opportunity is. So with that, I think we'll just we'll transition really quickly to our last topic of the day, which was the IPNFT mint, which I think Benji should explain since he's actually one of the product managers who led. The, the formation of the of the IPNFT Mint product um, and talk about it a bit, Benji. And I, I think it's pretty awesome what we just did with this thyroid hormone study. Awesome. So yeah, we'll we'll include the link to what is now HairDAO's intellectual property rights to the research that Ralph is coming up with um, that is on chain and now is is property of HairDAO, which is super exciting. And you can find it in the multi-sig for, for all to see. But yeah, the basic premise here is that you know, crypto, if there's one good application of it, it's for raising funds. And so, you know, because there's this kind of gap in funding that exists um, from traditional funding organizations, um, you know, by building this kind of group of, of hair loss researchers um, that want to contribute ideas, that want to contribute capital, allowing them to basically fund research in areas that are, that are interesting to them and that impacts their own lives. And so, you know, we think this really creates a better supply and demand for research um, than currently exists. And so the IPNFT is basically the vehicle that these these DAOs, these decentralized autonomous organizations can use to not only fund the research, but be able to get some of the rights to the intellectual property that come out of it to sustain the research. Um, so that it's not just purely like a grant with no strings attached, but also there's these rights um, that come back to the DAO so that you know they can basically create um, something analogous to a university endowment that basically just grows and grows and grows um, and continues to deploy and deploy back into hair loss research to to continue the amazing work that's being done like researchers such as Ralph. And yeah, I think what's been the most impressive to me and honestly terrifying is the quality of the discourse that's going on in Discord right now um, in HairDAO's um, channels. I mean, to see so many people talking about, you know, different transcription factors and, you know, growth factors and the, um, multiple them, feedback loops. Yeah. yeah. And it, it seems like every single day there's an, a new person to admire for their depth of knowledge. Um, and it, it, to me, it just shows the pain 
that you know individuals go through looking for answers. Um, and what it really leads to is high quality questions, um, which you know Ralph has the resources to, to hopefully answer, or at least you know, yeah, get get somewhere closer to the truth. So you know we're really excited about what Ralph is working on, and honestly we're excited to crowdsource some some new great ideas to to continue. Um, yeah, just trying to find more and more solutions. You know, if if thyroid hormones only work in people with hypothyroidism, well, what does everyone else do? So, yeah, you know, yeah. basically giving giving a treatment for everyone is the goal. Of course. Can I add a few things, Andrew, uh, to this? So, so yeah, yeah. Um, also extending upon my, my answer to your previous question. Uh, so the, the, the current, the, the problem with the, the, the first funding, uh, first funded project had our funded pro is, is of course the low budgets. Um, we knew we just had to get started somehow. So these budgets are, are fair, fairly, f fairly low. They are far below what you normally need uh, for this kind of project. But I think it was important to just get started. And then uh, if, the, if the data are exciting enough, I'm sure um, uh, there will be additional interest in following this up and going deeper. The, the, the other thing that, that I uh, um, perhaps should, should emphasize even more is um, I said initially that, that uh, all real progress in, in, hair, um, in hair loss treatment will be based on understanding the biology properly. And the only funding, funding mechanism we have so far uh, is the National Institutes of Health, yeah. which fund most of that research. But uh, if you, if you uh, look at this, and uh, I've only recently um, began uh, to submit uh, grant proposals uh, to the NIH, you realize if you're not submitting a grant proposal that has some mouse mutant in there, you are almost uh, as sure as dead uh, with your proposal. So the National Institutes of Health, to some extent, have degenerated into the National Institutes of Mouse Biology. <laughs> and that's exactly where all the money goes, mouse biology. And uh, if you do enough mouse work, often you don't even have to justify that this is whether or not this is clinically relevant. This is how the current publicly funded uh, research, particularly in the skin uh, arena, but I'm sure also many other areas, uh, is going. And uh, that is terrible because that keeps many university researchers who would want to um, generate clinically relevant data in the human system, it prevents them from doing that because they just don't have any way of funding it unless they have good industry contacts, right? Yeah. Which very few do. Yeah. So, so you you fill an absolutely vital niche that uh, the National Institutes of Health still has not understand understood. Uh, it uh, it should be covering, and that not only goes for endogenetic alopecia. It goes for alopecia areata. It goes for uh, serious hair diseases, uh, where it's mouse work, mouse work, and mouse work again uh, that gets funded. Uh, that is um, a, a very um, a misguided strategy, and you do something against it. Yeah, a, a great analogy, we, or really truth that we like to talk about is that there is no hair representation at the NIH. But when yeah, you apply yeah, yeah, absolutely, yep, yep. National Institute of Skin and Musculoskeletal and Arthritis Disease is where you have to go to get your funding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, then uh, uh, of course, uh, you can imagine how that goes if a grant proposal talking about male pattern balding is being uh, reviewed by a rheumatologist, right? <laughs> you can imagine how excited that rheumatologist gets unless he has very serious hair loss himself and wants something to happen fast. So, and that's the other point. That's the other point I'd like to, I'd still like to make. Um, since the the key to uh, making breakthrough treatments is really understanding human hair biology better. This unfortunately takes time and you need a long breath. Uh, all of you in a hurry, right? You want to treat hair loss. Uh, you want to cure hair loss, ideally by yesterday. It's not gonna happen, right? You gotta take it one step at a time. And one step at a time is you need to define, so what is the key problem in male pattern balding? miniaturization of the organ, anagen too short. Those are the two key problems, two key problems, and those we need to tackle in the right models. That will take time. Uh, and if, if you don't invest into basic research into this, 
you will not see the fast progress you want. So now we are running a low-hanging fruit project just to keep the crowd uh, engaged and, um, and, and uh, hopefully generate data fast. But what we really need to be doing is to go side by side with low-hanging fruit projects and serious long-term basic hair biology projects. It must be done in the human system. And I really hope that you can um, stimulate enough excitement in your community and commitment that this is being executed. Absolutely. And so and so to, to close it out here, if, if we'd love anybody who's watching to come join our community, whether you want to do work, research to help us out in any way, it doesn't have to be scientific research, it could be marketing help, it could be operations help, whatever, we, we need all that. Um, and then on a on a you know shameless plug, we're doing the hair the hair token auction on February twenty third. Uh, the funds raised with that with that auction with that auction will be used to fund more hair loss research. Um, and then just sort of the the mechanism of the way this all works, right, is that the hair token holders on a one token uh, per vote basis uh, get to govern the IP NFTs that we mint uh, from the research that we're doing with with professors like like Professor uh, Ralph Paus. Um, not investment advice, but uh, February 23rd. Uh, and uh, yeah, thanks so much for joining us, Ralph. It, it's honestly been so awesome working with you. You've you've been like laying the groundwork in this in this field, honestly, thanklessly for the for the last what, what's it been 40 years, half half a century. Um, and so, uh, not you know, so we, we really appreciate it. And, and you have like a, a huge uh, fan base uh, in our Discord group. And so I know everyone's super excited to hear from you. Um, and looking forward to doing more episodes. Great. Me too. Take All care, right. guys. All right. And have Thank fun. Thanks so much. Keep up the faith. No, um, yes. no BDs, <laughs> but uh, serious funding for solid biology. Yes. Yeah, yeah. All right. Exactly. Take care, guys. Bye. Bye, Bye. Take care.